We are in part three of our second Peter series, uh, part three out of four, and I entitled today's message, something cheery for the holidays, I entitled today's message, A Special Place in Hell. All right, fantastic. You know it's going to be good. What the Bible has for us today is pretty wild. Peter is on a rampage, and there's a major reason why. But in order to understand it, let's begin with a concept. Do you believe, and have you read, that teachers incur a stricter judgment? You read that. Do you believe that? All right. Let us then expand what teachers are. Teachers can also be leaders. Leaders can also be influencers. Wherever you influence another life, you are a teacher. You're a leader. You lead by example. You lead by role modeling. Whether you like it or not, whether you want to or not, you are an influencer in that area. When you are in your cubicle at work, every coworker around you is influenced by you. You are leading them in some way, shape, or form. Let's say you're a stay-at-home mom. There is no more powerful person shaping the lives of your children than you. No matter where you are in this world, you influence somebody. So if teachers, leaders, influencers incur a stricter judgment, what does that mean for you in that arena? Now, how do we know that they incur a stricter judgment? Well, James 3.1, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now you understand why I have such a seriousness about what I do. I understand that. But then it starts getting a little bit more extreme Jesus had something to say about the teachers of his day, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. As a matter of fact, Jesus in general really, really had a lot of grace and compassion and love for people through his earthly ministry. And he only rarely got ticked off. Every time he got really angry, it had to center around the same thing, which is what leaders taking advantage of other people. One of the things that the world loves about Jesus, they may hate his church, but they love him. One of the things that the world loves about Jesus is his underdog spirit. This whole idea that you don't mess with the poor, the disenfranchised, the hurting, the outcast. Those were the ones that Jesus grabbed around him and people began to say, yeah, it's about time that someone loves on the unlovable. But Jesus got ferocious about protecting his flock. He got ferocious about protecting children. Do you remember the phrase in the Bible that said, if you cause one of these little ones to sin, it's better what? That you tie a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the sea. That's pretty severe. You don't mess with the little guys. So when he talked about the Pharisees and teachers of the law, he said things like this. Woe to you, in Matthew 23, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. You want to get Jesus irritated. Lead someone else astray. Then he's coming after you. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. It's on the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. Here's the fill in the blank. To err is human. To lead others to hell is damnation. What did I say? To err is human. Sure, you're going to make mistakes. Sure, you're going to blow it. We all do. To lead others to hell is damnation. Peter has three major things he's trying to get across in this letter. The first one is how to grow up in the Lord. So we've handled a couple issues so far. We've talked about what it is to practically grow spiritually. We've talked about the power that the Word of God has in transforming our lives. We did that stuff last week and the week before. So now Peter's about to hit reason number two. For this letter. And that is, in this young fledgling church, a bunch of false teachers, bad guys, got into the church. There are wolves among the sheep, and he is not going to stand for it. As a matter of fact, his letter and the letter of Jude, Jesus' brother, are extremely similar, especially on this issue right here. They're almost identical. It's almost as if when Peter read what Jude had to say about protecting his flock, Peter said, that's absolutely right. And that garbage is going on in my churches. And he raced in to protect. Jude, when writing about these exact same people, said this. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, meaning I really wanted to write something positive, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Peter's going to write about the same people. What are these teachers doing? Here's what they do. There are really two errors, two polar opposites that Christians tend to fall in. And we in this church have a tendency to fall on either side. The first side is the Pharisee side. That's the side where we learn a lot about the Word of God, right? And we teach it every week. You're in here and you're getting huge amounts of Bible and we're training you up and you can get pretty cocky about that. You can start going, you know what, I know more Bible than somebody else and I can start using it to tell everybody else how to live and, right? We could become Pharisees. We have that danger in this church. And some of us have fallen prey to that. But mostly, the spirit of our church, the ethos of our church, or the personality of our church fights against that. Mostly, I make fun of those type of people. Right? That's not our groove. We're much more easygoing. We're much more grace-filled. We're much more, hey, let's just hang out with uh, everybody and let's just really have a talk about where we're really at. All right. So we tend to fall on the other side. 
On the other side, the other polar extreme is the greasy grace side. Jesus died for it. He probably doesn't care about it anymore. It's already been covered. So who cares what I do? It's no big deal. You can't judge me. Don't talk about my life. You got problems in your life so I can live however I want and everything's fine. And we have a bunch of garbage in our lives. We actually would err much more on that side in our church. So these leaders were coming into these brand new believers, grabbing that concept and making it sound spiritual. Hey, you guys, I'm a spiritual leader, and I just want to let you know this. Jesus Christ died for that. It doesn't matter what you do. Who cares? You can sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. You can do whatever you want. You know what? It's really kind of all about you. God really has done everything for you. You're a big deal, and you know what? Hey, angels have problems. We have problems. It's just how it goes. So what we need to do is we need to kind of bind together and just say, let it fly. That's who stepped into the church. Well, with a bunch of new believers, they don't know what's right and what's wrong. They're not sure what in the world's going on. And they're thinking, all right, sounds good to me. Problem is, that's not okay. So sure enough, Peter has a few words to say. You can imagine all the ones that are trying to hang on to their faith, right? They're all the new ones walking in going, I don't think that sounds right. I think it's kind of important how we live. And they're hanging in there, and all these leaders around them are getting more popular, they're getting more wealthy, and they're, everybody thinks they're amazing, and they're sitting there going, how am I ever going to last? Doesn't God care? Isn't he going to shut down the bad guys? Why can't, why can't he just take them out? I mean, if they're so offensive to him, why doesn't he do something about it? No, they're the most popular guys in the church. Have you ever been in a church where the leadership is so corrupt? Have you ever been in a Bible study where the leadership is so corrupt that there's nothing you can do? You know that all your cries will fall on deaf ears. It's a frustrating place to be. And in that time, you say, God, don't you care? Peter is about to say, yeah, he really cares. And he uses some big bombs to point it out. Would you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2? It's page 860 in the Bibles that were handed to you. It's almost all the way to the right in your Bibles. If you hit Revelation, clearly you went too far. It's a little book. It's obviously right after what? 1 Peter. Good. 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. Go to 2nd Peter. 2nd Peter chapter 2, verse 4. What we're going to do is just read through this to the end of the chapter, and then I'll bounce back and tear it apart, and we'll see if there's anything that we can take from this. Peter goes on about these false teachers and whether or not they're going to get away with it by saying this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented. 
in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. He's about to describe what these false teachers are like. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings, yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters that they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like beasts they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. Their blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed an accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then again are entangled in it and overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to his vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Whoa. Well, that's cheery. Anybody going to read that to their kids for devotional right before bed? We've got to pray about this one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. That we can even walk into your word. That, Lord, we may not understand everything. But I think we get your point. God, we don't want to be like that. We know we have the capacity to be like that. We know that it's in our nature in some ways to be wicked. I think we're all very clear on that one. But, Lord, you've changed us. You've made so many of us new. And we're trying really hard to run after you. Would you give us the strength and direction to be more and more like you every day? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's start. He mentions three stories off the top out of the Old Testament. Are you familiar with these? Many of us are, many of us are not. The first story he describes like this. He said, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Pause. What? What are you talking about? Jude says it this way. He said that they, 
These angels did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home. What are we talking about? What story is that? Anybody know that one? You got two choices. It's either when Lucifer fell, right, became Satan, and it was the whole fall of the angels. We don't know a lot of stuff about it, but what we can piece together is that he was kind of God's right-hand man, right? Beautiful and everything, powerful. Well, someday he ends up getting cocky and thinking that he can take the throne. Grabs a rebellion together, maybe one-third of the angels. They go after the throne, try to attack God. They lose. They're kicked out of heaven and now they wander around down here and cause some serious damage. All right. Is that what it's referring to? Not likely. Why? Well, number one, this talks about them being locked into gloomy dungeons with everlasting chains. That doesn't sound like a bunch of demons running around. It sounds like they're all locked down somewhere. So it's probably not talking about that. So what story is it talking about? Well, it's very possible that it's talking about a story in Genesis. As a matter of fact, Peter is quoting from a book that is not in our Bibles. The book of Enoch. Enoch was a book that was written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it was a Jewish tradition that a lot of people were familiar with. And he was referring to a story in Genesis chapter 6. Keep your finger there in Second Peter. Go to the first book of the Bible, please. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. This is a weird story. And by the way, well, we'll talk about that in a second. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Let's take a look at a really, really weird story. It says, When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air. For I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What are we talking about? In the book of Enoch, it says this. There were fallen angels known as the watchers. They came down and saw the women of the world and they were attracted to them. So they came down and had kids with them. What? How weird is that? You. Those kids were the Nephilim. And I know it sounds a lot like heffalumps and woozles. I get it. All right. The Nephilim were the giants. You're like, the giants? What do you mean the giants? No giants. All right. It says that when these offspring came, 
They were bigger than everybody else. They were stronger and they were evil all the time. They began to mess with the human race and really began to ruin things and let everybody astray. And it got so bad, God sent a flood and wiped everybody out. Now, is that really how it went? Well, that's what the book of Enoch says. That's not in our Bible. Peter's talking about it, though. Weird. All right. Is there any other biblical references to anything like this? Well, actually, there is. Remember when the Israelites were going into the promised land and they went to spy out the land and they're little Jews, right? Well, all of a sudden they go into this land and they said, we can't take it. And they said, why? They said, there are giants in the land. Do you remember that? What are they talking about? They said there were descendants of Anak there. Who's Anak? Old school guy. You know who else was a descendant of Anak? He was super famous. He fought a little kid named David. There you go. Goliath. How tall was Goliath? Nine feet tall. That's pretty big. As a matter of fact, when you find out his lineage, his gene pool was pretty messed up. Something went wrong. And we're not quite sure how it went down. The point is that according to this analogy that Peter describes, he said, do you realize these bad guys in the church aren't going to get away with it? Do you understand God brought the hammer down on angels? He didn't let them get away with it. Do you really think these guys are going to get away with it? Oh, I don't think so. He, as a matter of fact, sent down angels to grab the fallen angels and throw them into... What does it say in your Bible? Hell. Bad translation. That's not right. What is the Greek word? Tartarus. What? What's a Tartarus? It's like tartar sauce, a little different, right? What is Tartarus? Tartarus is a Greek concept in mythology of the lowest hell. Peter grabs that terminology, turns it around, uses it, and says, let me tell you about the lowest hell. God sent down, grab these angels that would dare violate their right and their position. And he chained them with everlasting chains and threw them into a pit to be held till the day of judgment where they would be thrown into the lake of fire. Have we ever seen that before? Yeah, every time Jesus came in contact with a demon-possessed person, what did the demons scream out? Don't send me to the, what? Abyss. You remember that? Why? Because they know darn well what it means to be chained down there, and they know that the next thing's like a fire. They would love to run around here and do their thing, right? So although we don't understand exactly what is going on here, and the old Jewish view was that this is talking about angels. Why? It says the phrase son of God, sons of God. That is used in Job three times of angels. It is used by the psalmist of angels, and it's Josephus, the Jewish historian. That's his version. As a matter of fact, all the ancient documents said this is talking about angels. It wasn't until later they started changing the story. Oh, angels would never do that. There's no way. They're spirit beings, and that couldn't happen. And then the story started changing. Those are just good guy, bad guys and good girls, and it's a bit more like Romeo and Juliet. All right. I don't think so. We're talking about angels. 
God laid the hammer down when angels fell. And he's going to do it to the false teachers. We move to the second story. It says this. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Stop. You know the flood story? Yeah. If God wiped out the whole human race, clearly he'll bring judgment. He didn't hesitate. He took out everybody. Do you understand what a big deal that is? I mean, we all look at it and go, yeah. Okay, how bad do things have to get for God to wipe out everyone? Pretty bad. Clearly, God will judge the ungodly. Third example. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? That's another one to read to the kids. Okay, are we all clear the Bible's rated R? Is everybody on that? Okay, everyone keeps trying to play some little, oh, we can be, you know, super simple and everything's for the kids. No, it's not. Have you read it? There are some messed up stories in there. This is one of them. And right after that story, it gets even more creepy. All right. What was the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, ends up moving into a very wicked city. When I taught the book of Genesis, I told everyone Lot was a bad guy. I literally got rebuked by someone in the congregation when they brought up this verse. I had completely forgotten this passage. When you read the Genesis account of Lot, there's no way you're going to think he's a good guy. Peter knew something I didn't know. That Lot was a good guy. All right, I'll hand off to him. He knows. But in that story, God decimated a whole group of cities. Sodom and Gomorrah are two separate cities. Are we all clear on that? He wiped them out with fire and brimstone that rained down with sulfur and absolutely decimated the whole area. Why? Because they were wicked. God will take down the wicked. That's the point Peter's trying to make. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. The bad guys don't win. And the good guys can be protected. That's the God that we serve. Now he starts explaining what these false teachers in the church. And by the way, we do know that these are realistic people, right? I want you to start thinking in your mind of all the cults that have come through. Remember David Koresh? Remember the Heaven's Gate cult? Remember Jim Jones? This is happening all the time. That some great charismatic leader starts coming in and telling people a bunch of garbage, wraps it all up in religious stuff, gets everyone to buy it, he takes advantage of them, and when he's done, they all die. It's not like this hasn't happened over and over and over again. That was happening to Peter's flock. He's not going to stand for it, nor will I. Everybody's under scrutiny, including me, right? 
He said, let me tell you what they're like. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. So these guys are super cocky, think that a whole world revolves around them and that everybody is for their consumption. They want to use everybody else. They despise all authority, all restraint, all accountability. They don't care about God. They don't care about angels. They don't care about leadership. They're going to do what they're going to do and they live only for themselves. It says they are bold, meaning daring to defy God. And they're arrogant. The Greek word is self-pleasing. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Most scholars believe that what it's referring to is that these false teachers were using angels to justify their bad behavior. They were saying, hey, angels have struggles. We got struggles. All right. You know what? Angels do some bad stuff. So do we. But you know what? Jesus died for it all. We're good. No, that's not true. It's not all good. And then he says this. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. Hmm. Jude, when he writes about this, brings up a story that's also not in our Bible. What does he say? He said, you remember the story of when, what, Michael the archangel fought with the devil about the body of Moses? You're like, no, I don't know that story. Never heard that one before because it's not in your Bible. Jude refers to it. Apparently what happened was this. When Moses got done leading the children of Israel through the promised land, he was not allowed to go in. Do you remember that? Why? Because he rebelled against God and he did something he wasn't supposed to do. So he was not going to get in. He had to stand up on a mountain, look over into the promised land, and God said, that's what you're missing. Because you didn't follow me. God said, even though you are just as strong today as when we first started this, You're not getting older to where your body's falling apart. Your body's solid. You're still not getting in. You're done. God killed him. You're out. It says then, Michael the archangel came down to go take the body of Moses. The devil said, hold on, he's mine. They're like, what? He's mine. He didn't get in the promised land because he violated God. He's mine. Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. Absolutely not. Notice he reflected off the father to take out the bad guy. He did not start saying, who do you think you are? You already lost one battle, buddy. We shut you down last time. There was no arrogance. It was absolute. The Lord rebuke you. You know you're fighting against him. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted in the desert by Satan? How did he respond to the temptings of Satan? Every time with scripture, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He kept quoting scripture at him. Why? Jesus is the son of God. He could have literally embarrassed Satan. Did he? Nope. Ricocheted off the father to provide us an example of how to do it. I have fallen here. There's a couple things I've done wrong. One of them is this. 
in my arrogance, because I know that God wins Satan, I have said some very disrespectful things about the demonic and about Satan. I've used some very disrespectful phrases. And I had to realize I was wrong. Yeah, he's a bad guy, but that doesn't mean that I can get cocky. You walk in with humility. You remind yourself that you're not God. There is only one God, and he's the one that takes care of the bad guys. All right, we move on. He said, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings, yet even angels, although they're stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, meaning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like beasts they too will perish. They will be paid back harm for the harm they have done. Jude called them shepherds who feed only themselves. You ever had a leader in your life that was only about themselves and they used you for their gain? They weren't interested in protecting you. They weren't interested in guiding you. They weren't interested in your welfare. They were into it for what they could get out of it only. They wanted your praise. They wanted your cash. They wanted everything from you. And they gave you nothing. And you could tell they were merely takers. That really irritates the Lord. The higher your calling, the more of a servant you are called to be. Their idea of pleasure, Peter said, is to carouse in broad daylight. Meaning they're proud of their sin. They wrap it in religious stuff and so they don't hide it. He said, even the world hides their stuff. Drug deals got to go down in the dark. These guys wrapped in religious stuff, they flaunt it. Oh, this is me. I'm the big dog leader. You got nothing to say. And they will do sin in front of everybody and say that it's okay. They are, Peter says, blots and blemishes. They are unclean. And they're ruining everything. Get them out. They are reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. Meaning they're in your fellowship. They're taking advantage of you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. This is a powerful phrase in Greek. Let me share it with you. Remember in Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. You remember that? All right, guys, let me talk to you for a second. It's not like the women aren't affected by this, but I, it's much more stereotypically common with men. Guys, here's what the phrase means. It means by habit, by lifestyle, you've bent your mind to think of women as something to use. Your eyes, whenever you see a woman, you immediately scan them to see if they're of any sexual benefit to you before you can move on. So you scan all ladies in your life, every person that you interact with, every woman that walks by. You scan to see whether or not there's an immediate attraction. Scan if there's any sexual benefit. Then you move on. He said, your eyes are full of adultery. You can't even see past it. It's an automatic autopilot thing. You just see women like that. Guys, how many of us have fallen prey to that? All the women, of course, are horrified right now. 
right? Guys, you know what I'm talking about. You know all the times when you have to relock your mind. Remember that you're a son of God. Try to get your head back in the game and treat women with respect. But why have we set a pattern to where that's hard? Right? With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. Now that's just unfair. You don't go after the ones that are unstable. Oh, you do if you're a predator. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed. Meaning they're studied and trained in greed. They know how to maximize and use people to their greatest benefit. An accursed brood, meaning cursed kids. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. You guys, this is a tough passage to preach. Here we go. You remember this story? The talking donkey story? Have you been in the church long enough to not think this is weird? Okay, do you all realize this is weird? Okay, everyone that is visiting right now wants to leave. Okay, because they're trying to go, I don't want anything to do with this. This whole church thing and this whole Bible thing is too weird for me. All right, I get it. It is weird. It's weird to me. But it's referring to a story in the Old Testament. There was a guy who was religious. He did divination. He was kind of like a spiritualist man. His name was Balaam. So as Israel was getting bigger and bigger, moving across and taking over more territory, the other nations were scared to death of them. The Moab nation starts seeing them come at him. So the king goes, I got to go get that guy. I need him to curse those people. So he goes with a ton of cash and says, will you go curse Israel for me? Go check with God and ask if he'll curse the Jewish people. And Balaam's like, all right. So he goes in, hey, God, you want to curse your chosen people? No. What are you, a moron? I'm just asking. What's interesting is that he was asking. Why was he asking? He knew darn well not to do that. So why was he asking? Because it was a lot of money. You know, we start shifting when the money rises. We're super solid as long as the money is low, right? And we're like, what? Are you kidding me? Of course I wouldn't do that. And then the money raises and you're like, I don't think I would do that. Right? All right. That's what I thought. The money was really high and he was really tempted to cave. So he starts doing this whole, well, I'm going to curse him. God blesses him. And it all turns around badly for the bad guys. But along the way, there's this little story tucked in there. God's mad at Balaam. So Balaam heads out on a donkey. Right? I don't know the donkey's name. We'll call her Bessie. So he's, he's riding out on Bessie. And then as they're going down the road, all of a sudden Bessie's like, whoa, got to go this way and goes off the trail. So he starts hitting the donkey. Well, you're totally disobedient. He's yelling at her, getting her back on the trail. She's like, whoa, what's up with that? All right. So then they're riding along. Sure enough, Bessie starts cruising to the other side. Whoa, moving away. He starts beating the donkey again. Finally, they get to this really narrow roadway where there's a rock wall on the side. Bessie's like scooting by, right? Trying to edge out on the side, crushing his leg against the wall. Well, now he's had, he's cussing at her, he's hitting her and doing all this stuff, right? All of a sudden, the donkey talks. 
She's like, what is your problem? And, and instead of going, why are you talking? He starts arguing with her. He's like, you're disobedient, right? And she's like, dude, look. And there's this huge angel standing right in the way with a sword drawn. He's like, I will kill you right now. Donkey's like, see, you never trust me. Right? It's very similar to Shrek. Not as funny. <laughs> and then what? He, oh, I get it. Sorry, donkey. All right. Well, anyway, the point is here, Mr. Brilliant guy is running around doing stupid stuff because of his greed. And it takes a donkey to correct him. That's embarrassing. He said, same with these guys. They're going after the cash and they look really stupid. God's going to embarrass them. I'll tell you that. It says, these men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Jude calls them clouds without rain. Can you imagine a farmer who so desperately needs his crops watered and here comes some clouds. And he's thinking his prayers are answered and then what? They blow away. No rain. Just all your hopes get up and they're dashed. You ever had leadership like that? All talk and nothing. You prayed and prayed for someone to come into your life. Maybe you've had relationships like that. You were so excited to have someone new in your life and you thought, Now, God's blessing me. Nothing. All talk. You know how frustrating that is? That's this. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. It means they're going after the newbies. You never mess with new converts. Remember that feeling when you first get into Jesus? You're all pumped up. You're excited because you've been forgiven. You're all hungry for the word. You'll believe anything any teacher says. If someone walks in and takes advantage of that, do you see how wicked that is? You don't take advantage of the little ones. And yet there are people out there that are looking at it as an opportunity. God's not okay with that. And he will not take it sitting down. It says, these teachers promise them freedom, right? Hey, grace, don't worry about it. You can do anything you want. God will cover it. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. All right, let's make it personal. What addiction do you got? Well, you think you got one? How many you got? Or I should say appropriately, how many do you have? Remember we did the 30 days of fast? What did you push away for 30 days? What in your life was getting in your way with God and you pushed it away for 30 days? It was really hard, huh? Some of you realized it was too hard. See, we always play the game that I can, I can stop at any time I want, but you've never tried, so you don't know. When you try to push it away and then it's too hard, then you realize, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. So what is it? The Bible says that we should be mastered by nothing. We don't let our bodies push us around. We are to dictate what we do. 
Yet I have a bunch of stuff in my life that's real hard if I try to stop. It could be as simple as caffeine, yeah? We all joke about, hey, stop in Starbucks. Can you? Can you stop caffeine? What could, if you wanted to stop smoking, could you? You want to talk about a brutal addiction? That's harsh. TV. Can you turn off the TV? Oh, of course, I can turn off the TV anytime I want. You sure? Try it for a month. We'll see. It's wild what we're addicted to. Hmm. Then he says this, if they've escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then are again entangled in it and overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. In other words, when you're just all alone, living in the world, being an average regular guy people's expectations of you were pretty low all of a sudden you find out about jesus you get all pumped up start telling everybody you're into god and then you turn your back on all of it and run back to the world now you look really silly now everyone's expectations have changed of you now they're going to call you a hypocrite they used to just call you a loser it's rough but you know what i'm talking about It's better that you didn't even start than you get all excited, tell everybody everything's going great with you and the Lord, and then you start telling everybody else how to live their lives, and then next thing they know, next Christmas, you're back in the world doing worse stuff than you did before. Satan doesn't take kindly to you walking out on him. Okay. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to his vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever owned a dog. Okay, y'all know what I'm talking about. Okay. My dog yacked two days ago. I know exactly what I'm talking about. All right. Second analogy. When you wash off little pig, what is it going to go do? Right back in the mud. Why? Because it's a pig. It's what pigs do. You can clean it up as much as you want, but it's going to go back in the mud. That's what pigs do. So what do you have to do? You have to change your nature. You've got to change from being a pig. got to change from being a dog. got to change from being an unclean animal to a clean animal. Maybe like a sheep. You've got to have your nature changed. If Jesus hasn't come in and changed your heart, then all you're doing is washing off the mud. But when he changes your nature inside, you're a whole new type of creation. And then you're known as a child of God. Are we all perfect now? No, we are messed up. But now we have some help. God in us, through the Holy Spirit, is helping you become more and more like Jesus every day. And you're not alone. And you'll never be alone. What do we take from this lesson? Number one, we do not want to be like those guys. Please don't use the church for your benefit. You're like, well, I'm not even a leader. I can't do that. I wouldn't even, even if I wanted to, I couldn't use the church. 
how much gossip has passed through your lips about someone in this church? I understand it was a prayer request. Right? How much have you shared something negative about someone else in this church because it was interesting? You just abused your influence. Guess who else has done that? Me. Well, you think I'm any different? I was just as convicted by this message as you. Sometimes I wonder why I keep finding myself in the mud. All right, I get it. Please don't abuse the amazing ability to be in a family like this. And then what? We don't want to be like them. And then secondly, what? God can protect us in this very dangerous world. You've got to know that he is more concerned about your safety than you are. While you sleep, he protects you. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, that we might be able to walk in your word and see some keys to living rightly. That, Lord, as much as we look at everybody else and look at the sin in their lives and think it's horrible, God, what about ours? What about the garbage we're allowing to be in our life? The ways in which we use other people. And I know it's not okay. I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see other people like you do, as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That, Lord, that we would have compassion, grace, love, and live selfless lives. Make us more and more like you, Jesus. Heal us from the inside out that we might bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.